It was about that time that King Herald arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the, fest, the feast of the unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to, the guard, to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, for the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and two centurions stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on one side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your cloaks and your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing and what was really doing was really happening, so he thought he would see a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, then they went through it. When they walked through the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to him and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had drawn him on, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came out to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. The second reading is taken from Acts 2. Um, verses 42 to 47, and that's just on page 1094. So Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he needed. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the flavour flavor of all the people. And the Lord added to the number daily who were also being saved. Charles is going to preach and I'm going to pray then on the verge of doing that. So let's pray. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Father, you know that Charles has been doing that on our behalf this week as he's been preparing this sermon. And we pray that we would do that now for the next few minutes as he opens up these verses to us. Please give us a rich time together, sitting under your word. Teach us new things. Remind us of valuable old things. And be with Charles. Speak through him. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray it. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, I recently had uh, an MOT for my car. That's the special safety test for cars over a certain age. Uh, for a start, I had to have a complete set of four new tyres as the tread was not deep enough after prolonged use. 
Then two new rear coil springs had to be fitted to replace ones which had been broken. Then there was a service of the car, new air, fuel, and pollen filters, spark plugs, brake cleaner, oil, add the cost of the MOT and the VAT, and the cost? Don't ask. But what I got was a car in really good running order. The MOT had shown up things that had to be changed. Lent, the period before Easter, is by tradition a time to take a spiritual checkup. And All Aboard Sunday is just one part of that when we consider or reconsider the way we use our time and talents in the service of others at St. Michael's. And this is not a time to beat everyone up, but it's time, literally, to have a checkup. So please prayerfully complete those forms and do return them to us. The passage from our second reading demonstrates what a healthy church should look like. Many will know the best-selling self-help book by Stephen Covey called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Today, tonight, we're going to consider the seven marks of a healthy church, which can also be applied personally and individually, the seven marks of a spiritually healthy Christian. So would you turn to Acts chapter 2? It's on page 1094. But before looking at these in detail, I want you to note that firstly, verse 42, they devoted themselves. And the dictionary definition of devoted includes the idea of consecrating oneself to God for a particular act. It's a very strong word, and it means uh, to do with abandoning oneself totally for a cause or a person. The people threw themselves into the life of the church. I like that. And look over the verses. They're full of superlatives. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. Verse 44, all the believers were together. Verse 45, they gave to anyone as he had need. This was dynamic. No half measures, no half-heartedness here. Each person was committed and involved. And they were also full of joy. Isn't that great? They had meals together and ate with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God, verse 47, and they were clearly good to have around, for they enjoyed the favor of all the people. They were not VDPs. Very draining people. They were VIPs, very inspiring people. And people were attracted to them because they'd clearly discovered something life-changing. Could that be said of you and me? The seven signs concern, firstly, our relationship with God, secondly, with other Christians, and thirdly, with those not yet Christians. So the first three are our relationship with God. The first sign of a healthy church, a spiritually healthy Christian, is that it submits to God's word as the ultimate authority. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were those who had walked, talked, and lived with Jesus for three years, and their task was to pass on all that Jesus had shown them. And that became known as the New Testament. What we call the Old Testament was already available. And Jesus constantly made it clear that he regarded it as God's word. So what should be our attitude today to both the Old Testament and the New Testament? 
Peter, in his first letter, talks about the living and enduring Word of God. Have you ever experienced that for yourself? As you've read a Bible verse or heard a sermon, have you ever thought, that's speaking directly to me? How did they know that? God speaks to us, sometimes to challenge some behavior. Perhaps we haven't forgiven someone. Sometimes to encourage us that we're going in the right direction. Sometimes to correct us over something that we've got wrong. Perhaps we've misunderstood God's character. God's word also transforms. To take, for example, our attitude to other Christians, Peter again. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Rick Warren written this, the truth transforms us. Spiritual growth is the process of replacing lies with truth. The world says that everybody who goes to church is boring. The word says, if you're a disciple of Jesus, other disciples are your family. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't choose them, God does. And your task is to have a sincere love for them. Now I have to say, it's a huge privilege to be the Vicar of St. Michael's, as I've got to know many of you. And a number have become close friends. And I'm sure that's true of you as well. So we're related, and that's special. And for many of us, we're real friends. How do we submit to God's word? We take it seriously. We take sermons seriously. A 20-minute sermon or a 25-minute sermon does not take 25 minutes to prepare. We take notes. We listen to them again. You can hear it on the website. You write down what you will do as a result of studying God's Word. Occasionally people say, Charles, I really appreciated that or liked it, that sermon you preached. And I say, great. What are you going to do? D.L. Moody said this, The Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Secondly, a healthy church treats Holy Communion with reverence. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Paul, writing to the Christians in the Corinthian church, describes the Lord's Supper and then warns that we are not to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner, or we will be sinning against the Lord, and that will bring judgment on ourselves. So, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Paul's warning is picked up in even the modern Church of England service, the common worship service. There is a little sentence, and it says this, As we gather at the Lord's table, we must recall the promises and warnings given to us in the Scriptures and so examine ourselves and repent of our sins. There should always be reverence in our worship. After all, we're here in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't come thoughtlessly or carelessly. There is no one more important than him. You probably know the story about the Queen. Somebody went to visit 
to see her and to have a conversation, and horror of horrors, their mobile phone went off. And she said to him, somebody more important? There's no one more important than the living God. So there should always be a reverence in our worship. That doesn't mean to say there isn't joy. That doesn't mean to say that we're celebrating. It's not dull, but we're reverent. Our attitude should not be callous and thoughtless, in particular when we come to celebrate the communion, because that takes us to the heart of our faith, namely the cross of Christ. That reminds us how much God loves us, that he's on our side Thirdly, a healthy church makes prayer a priority. They devoted themselves to prayer. Wasn't it great to hear from Will and Liz and to hear from Will that prayer is key? And I think, Will, it's true, isn't it? You had a Nigerian bishop who stayed with you. And uh, he came to stay, and um, every three hours, the alarm went off. And after three days, it's rather difficult when you're a curate and you say to a bishop, is everything all right? Because your alarm is going off every three hours. And he said, listen to this. Yes, it is. We get up to pray. Why is the church in Nigeria, with all its joys and sorrows and challenges, in the state it is, and we are in the state we're in? I'm sure part of the answer is prayerlessness. And I'm looking at myself. The context here is corporate prayer, but whether corporate or individual, a prayerless Christian is not a spiritually healthy Christian. God's people have always come together to pray. And our first reading describes what happened when the church prayed about Peter, who'd been imprisoned by Herod. Acts 12, verse 12, the Christians have gathered at Mary's house to pray. Things are serious. Meanwhile, Peter has been miraculously released from prison by an angel of God. But when Peter knocks on Mary's door, the believers refuse to take the word of Rhoda, the servant girl, that Peter is actually there. Oh, Lord, please bring Peter. Please bring Peter, Lord. And it's, it's funny. Because Rhoda was so overjoyed when she recognized Peter, she ran back without opening the door. And poor Peter had to keep on knocking. Bill Hybels, in his book, Too Busy Not to Pray, incidentally a sell-your-shirt book, Too Busy Not to Pray, note that, states that God's prevailing power is released through power. God's prevailing power is released through prayer. We don't fully understand why that should be, but God has made it abundantly clear in the Bible that he chooses to work through the prayers of his people. And actually, all the spiritual revivals, the ones that have happened even in this country, have started with Christians meeting for prayer. The great Welsh revival of 1905 started with prayer. And there's something particularly powerful about his people coming together to pray as a body, agreed in heart and mind. That's why whenever it's altogether Tuesday, I always say this is a three-line whip, which is parliamentary for language, is if you're a regular of St. Michael's, it's a key meeting. Our monthly prayer meeting is a vital part of our life at St. Michael's. So the first three signs of a healthy church concern its relationship with God. Such a church submits to God's word as its final authority, treats Holy Communion and all its worship with reverence, and makes prayer a priority. 
The fourth mark of a healthy church focuses on our relationship with other Christians. For the quality of our relationships with one another, for a healthy church promotes loving fellowship. Verse 42, the people devoted themselves to the fellowship. The word in Greek is koinonia, which means common or shared. All the believers were together and had everything in common, verse 44. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They ate together. And that last point is very important. Eating together and showing hospitality is vital to our Christian discipleship. That is why I've been so thrilled with having this hospitality weekend when we can do just that. Incidentally, I embarrassed them this morning because they were there. Jack and Olivia Brooks, if they ever invite you to a meal, go, as Trisha and I did. Fantastic. But what was great was just getting to know each other better. I can see Olivia and Jack's flat with twinkling lights, even as I speak. But actually, there's something about hospitality, particularly in London. Note, they came together, yes, in large gatherings in the temple, also in small groups in each other's home. They knew it was vital to do that if their faith was not to falter. Not everyone has always understood that. Even in New Testament times, the writer to the Hebrews was having to encourage his hearers, let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Brackets, this is a bad habit to give up meeting together. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. As you see the day when we will be called to account, meet. I hope Will and Liz will be encouraged. I've been encouraged by them. How can we encourage each other if we're not here? You can never receive encouragement if you're not here regularly. I've spoken before about a friend of ours who was chaplain to the Anglican Church in Damascus many years ago. Then as now, political tensions were running very high. And an American diplomat attended that church with his family every Sunday without fail, despite the fact that all members of the diplomatic community were working very long hours. And my chaplain Fred said to him, it's so good to see you in church every Sunday when I know how hard you are having to work. And the diplomat replied, being here for Sunday worship is non-negotiable. There is nothing more important for me to be doing. Is that so for you too? Now the Christians in Acts met in the temple courts and in smaller groups in homes. So we have smaller groups at St. Michael's when there can be deeper, closer relationships. And if you're not in one, do consider joining one. Have a word with John or Tim or myself. Fellowship, of course, needs to be worked at and unity maintained. Remember that God paid a very high price for the church and he wants it protected from division, conflict and disharmony. And we all have a part to play in that. Now that, we could spend all the rest of this evening talking about that. I'll limit myself to just a few brief points about how we can promote loving fellowship. Here's the first one. Be realistic in your expectations. Rick Warren wrote this. The sooner we give up the illusion that a church must be perfect in order to love it, the sooner we quit pretending 
and start admitting we're all imperfect and we need grace. This is the beginning of real community. Secondly, decide to encourage and not criticize. We need to be radiators, bringing the warmth of appreciation wherever we go, not drains which pull each other down. Are you a VDP or a VIP? Refuse to listen to gossip. Again, a very helpful statement from Rick Warren. I'll read this carefully. Listening to gossip is like accepting stolen property. It makes you just as guilty of the crime. Don't you think that's brilliant? Listening to gossip is like accepting stolen property. It makes you just as guilty of the crime. Fourth sign of a healthy church, it promotes loving fellowship. And the last three signs are to do with our relationship with the world. The fifth sign, a healthy church expects the supernatural. It expects the supernatural. You'll see in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. This pattern of wonders and signs recurs repeatedly through the whole book of Acts as a continuation of Jesus' ministry. So Acts 3, there's the healing of the crippled beggar by Peter and John. Acts 8, and I'm not sure I spotted this, Philip is sent to a city in Samaria when again there are dramatic healings. These incidents were often associated with a proclamation of the gospel. They authenticated the, the apostles' authority. Clearly, the level of the miraculous is of a different order today, certainly in the West. Yet, Christianity is a supernatural religion. So we should continue to look and pray for healing, for God to order events, and most especially to bring the spiritually dead to life. A healthy church expects the supernatural and believes that God can and does act in a supernatural way. Yet many Christians are practical atheists. We believe God for our salvation, but we do not believe that he's able to order events or intervene in daily life. So we carry burdens and anxieties that God never meant us to carry, like the Christians in Acts 12, praying for Peter's release. We pray not really believing that God will answer, and we're shocked when he does. We must avoid being practical atheists. When Jesus met the woman at the well in Samaria, John chapter 4, she was startled to discover that Jesus knew all about her personal life. She went back to the town and said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And she told the world about Jesus and his remarkable knowledge of her. That kind of knowledge, I believe, is one of the gifts of the Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. In pastoral situations, God may sometimes reveal something about a person in a situation which is a great help in understanding what is going on, and sometimes that enables specific help to be brought. A word of knowledge is given to someone as they're praying for someone. I know that from personal experience and know it of others too. Whilst the birth of a baby is a miracle, so is spiritual birth and growth in faith. You can argue all day, every day with someone, but unless the Holy Spirit opens someone's eyes, they will never see. Soon after I became a committed Christian, a school friend heard 
to use his words, that I'd gone religious. So he came to see me and asked his questions. He was very bright, and I couldn't answer them. So I'd tell him, and I'd say, I'll go and do some research. I'll find the answer to your question. We'll meet again in a week's time, and I'll give you the answer. Imagine my amazement when the next week he would tell me that his question had already been answered, and he had a new question. I was always trying to catch up because the Holy Spirit was speaking to him and reaching him in a supernatural way that I couldn't. And he's still a Christian today. A healthy church, healthy Christians, expect the supernatural. Sixth sign. Sixth sign of a healthy church, it gives generously. Selling their possessions and good, they gave to anyone as they had need. Now note, they weren't compelled to do so, they wanted to do so. Clearly they didn't sell absolutely everything because they were still meeting in one another's houses. But there was a marvelous, generous sharing of possessions and opening of homes that spilled over to the outside world. Since we read in verse 47, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Such generosity was not new because in the Old Testament, God's people were instructed to give a tenth of their produce to support God's work. And a tenth, listen to this, was the minimum. The minimum. In Exodus 36, we read of a marvelous moment. The tabernacle was to be built. The people were asked to give free will offerings, that is, in addition to the tenth, in order that they could buy the materials to build the tabernacle. They did this to such an extent that orders had to be given to restrain their generosity. Isn't that amazing? Do not put any money in the collection at St. Michael's. We've covered the budget for the year. I'm looking forward to saying that. And we read of similar generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 when the Macedonian Christians, who were extremely poor, pleaded for the privilege of giving to other Christians in need. One of the humbling experiences of being in Tanzania with our Christian brothers and sisters, where they are extremely poor in many areas, is that when you're a guest or a visitor, they spend generously on you in a humbling way. Seventh sign. Seventh sign of a healthy church. It loves to share the gospel. 22, uh, chapter 2, verse 47, and the Lord added. Here, primarily, it's about our relationship outward with those who are not yet Christians. Now, John Stott, in his commentary on this verse, made three very helpful points. Here's the first one. It's Jesus who added to their number. He's the main evangelist. Doesn't that take the pressure off? Yes, we have a part to play. I think it was Roger Simpson who said, it may be our part is to cross the room, to invite them to the wine tasting, to invite them to the carol service, to invite them just to be on a Sunday service. Secondly, they were added to the church because they had believed and trusted in Jesus. They weren't nominal Christians, Christians in name only, nor did they come to a saving faith without adding them to the church. There's no such thing as solitary Christianity. Salvation and membership of a church belong together. And they still do. Thirdly, it was a daily occurrence, not a special mission once every few years. It was part of their lifestyle. 
And in Acts 8, so are you ready for someone who asks, as I did, I asked a friend, I said, what is a Christian? How do I become a Christian? Do you have a booklet available? Can you turn to appropriate Bible verses? Can you recommend a Christian book that will help a friend think through their questions? Are you ready to seize the opportunity? Because they do come, particularly if you pray for them. It'll be a chink, a door opening just a bit. In Acts 8, we read how the opportunity came to Philip. God called him and sent him to a desert area. And he met there a very important man, an Ethiopian court official. He was in his chariot, and he was clearly spiritually open. He was reading Isaiah 53. And Philip simply asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And when the man said no, Philip explained how that remarkable prophecy points to Jesus. And the Ethiopian was open to receive Christ, and he asked Philip to baptize him. And we read this. He went on his way rejoicing. Why do we think that if we share the good news of Jesus, people will be miserable? I can remember feeling it was like a piece of the jigsaw that just fitted. Why didn't anybody ever tell me before? If you've got good news, you love sharing it. You see, that's the thing about, about this extraordinary moment. When an opportunity came, Philip was ready. He could explain it simply and clearly. And the man got it. And he said, what's to stop me being baptized? Let's do it. So there we have it. Seven marks of a healthy church. One which submits to the word of God rather than a prevailing culture, whatever that may be. One which treats Holy Communion with reverence and all worship with reverence. One which makes prayer a priority, which promotes loving fellowship, which expects the supernatural, which gives generously, and which loves to share the gospel. So, how was your spiritual MOT? Could there be one or two points of the seven that you need to pay attention to? Like me. Are there some that we should focus on more as a church? I think so. And we talked at the beginning about being devoted. That's what all aboard means, doesn't it? So easy in a city like London to try to be half aboard, to come to this church for teaching, to that somewhere for worship, somewhere for events. That's not biblical Christianity. The biblical way is to work out where God is calling you and then to throw yourself into the life of that church. So do take a form and see what God might be asking you to contribute in time and talents to this family. And thank you again for so many of you who already do that very, very sacrificially. Can I encourage those who are not giving their time or talents to consider how you might come aboard? You see, that way, you not, don't can't become just a healthy Christian. You become a joyful one as well. Don't miss out. Let's pray.